Good morning, everybody. Please do sit down. We welcome you really, really warmly to church this morning, especially if you're visiting us from out of town or you're here in town and a friend just brought you along this morning. You're not in the habit of coming. We're thrilled that you're with us this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a passage of the Bible together now. Can I ask you to take up the one you were given when you came in and turn to page 1023, page 1023. If you're in your own Bible, it's 1 John chapter 4. As we reach the penultimate week, I think, of our series going through this great letter together. You may also want to take up the outline of the talk that's on the back of the notice sheet you were given. You'll see the headings that we're going to be speaking to there. But once you're there, why don't I read to us from 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Two thirds of the way down the page there. John writes, by this we know that we abide in God and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says to God, uh, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, see, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It'd be a great help if you keep that open uh, in front of you. Our focus once again this morning is authenticity. Um, it's been in view all the way through one John, and we all know it's important. So if you get a phone call from a, a bank asking you to confirm your account details or you spot an offer online that looks almost too good to be true or your friend meets someone who seems too good to be true, in every case, we want to know that they are genuine. And of course, if that matters with our finances, with our emotions, it's even more important when we talk about our soul. 
and the fundamental issues of life and death and eternity. If I'm to believe what someone is telling me about God and about Jesus and who gets to heaven and how they get there, I want to be confident that they are the real deal telling me the truth. Can you imagine sitting faithfully in a pew for decades, believing what you're being told from the front and allowing it to shape your life only to discover that they were frauds and were misleading you all along. Uh, If you've been with us uh, recently, you'll know one John was written to a church who was starting to wonder if they'd been listening to the right people. Uh, They'd always believed the word of life, as it's called, the message about Jesus that had been proclaimed by the apostles. But now a group had left their church and set up a new one, and they were claiming to have a, a deeper knowledge of God than the apostles, and they were denying some of the things that the apostles had been teaching. And it was making John's friends in this church start to wonder, maybe we've been backing the wrong horse Maybe we're not as connected to God as we hoped. If we joined them, would we better off? Should we jump ship as well? And John's aim in the letter is to reassure his friends. He reasserts the authority of the apostles to speak for God. He says, we are in true fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. We've seen Jesus with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. We heard him with our ears. And he is the message that we've proclaimed to you all along. So if you believe our message, if you, if you stick in it, if you abide in it, then you not only have eternal life, but you can know that you have eternal life. That love, the believers, they're not the real deal. You're the real deal if you're abiding in the truth that the apostles taught. And to sort of back up that reassurance, John produces evidence You you might look for a a kite mark on a product to check that it's uh, been well built, it's been tested, it meets the required standards. So John's saying, here's a few proofs, if you like, that you really do have true fellowship with God. We thought a few weeks ago about our righteousness. Not that we're perfect, obviously, but one sign that you belong to God is that you don't continue to live as though God's not there, ignoring him and just doing whatever you want, but you aim to live a godly life. And now this morning, a couple more bits of evidence. They're not brand new in 1 John. He sort of circles around the same ideas again and again through the letter. But two points that are designed to build our confidence that if we know Jesus, if we're listening to what the apostles taught, that we can know that we have eternal life. Here's number one. We know the love of God. We know the love of God. I'm going to read from verse 13 following. Notice how this whole little chunk is full of the language of abiding as I read. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in God and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. I don't use that word abide very much these days, but it comes up five times in these few verses. It's all about where you stay, where you remain, where you dwell. It's about where your home is. And here it works in two different directions. Did you see that? God incredibly makes his home 
in those who believe in Jesus. And then simultaneously, we find our true home in him. Uh, both sides of it are incredible. Maybe we're more familiar in churches with talking about God abiding in us. When Jesus was about to return to heaven, he promised his disciples that they wouldn't be left as orphans, but God, Father, Son, and Spirit would come and live and make their home in us and in everyone who believes the apostles' message. It's an incredible thought. But the God who made the stars and everything else, who sustains the universe, might come and, and live within us. Might, might give us a share in his life, might work to make us like him, would promise to be with us always through all the ups and downs of life. And, and here the inverse is true as well, as God makes his home in us, so we find our true home in him. We find our true destiny. We find the place that we truly belong. We find a place of ultimate security and safety as we live in his light, as we share in his life, as we experience his forever love in relationship with him. It is a mind-bending, it's a heart-stretching thought, isn't it? But here the question is one of evidence. How do we know that God abides in us and that we abide in him? And John says, verse 13, well, we know because he's given us his spirit. But in a sense, that just kicks the problem down the road, doesn't it? How do you know that he's given you his spirit? And it is all to do with the work that the spirit does in us. Um, in 1 John, the work of the Spirit is always tied really closely to the truth of the gospel. If you were to read through the letter, you would see that. That's why John jumped straight from talking about the Spirit in verse 13 to talking about the Apostles' message in verse 14. Um, Jesus had promised that when his Spirit came, he would first lead the Apostles into all truth so that they could proclaim the truth the word of life, and then that the Spirit would work in the world to convict people of the truth of the gospel. That's the Spirit's work. So to put it simply, what is the evidence that God has given me his Spirit? Well, not that I have some amazing experience of God or that I feel insanely close to him all the time or that I speak in tongues or whatever else. But verse 15, here's the evidence, that I confess that Jesus is the Son of God and that I believe that he is the savior of the world. Or in other words, as verse 16 puts it, here's how you know. You know and believe the love that God has for you. That's the work of the Spirit in you. It is such an important point. Um, for years early on in my Christian life, I was desperate for evidence of the Spirit's work in me. And I presumed that it would necessarily look like a whole series of ecstatic experiences of God. And that's what I was being told by other people around me. And when I didn't have those experiences, I started to doubt whether God really was at work in my life, whether I needed to believe something different or go somewhere else. And all the while I was missing a genuine miracle that was staring me in the face, that God the Holy Spirit had already worked in my life to open my eyes and give me faith to believe in Jesus and help me to know the love that God has for me. So how do you know that God abides in you and that you abide in God? Well, one key mark, you know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's why we always say if you're investigating the Christian faith, the place, the place to start is Jesus and the love that he showed on the cross. We don't deserve his love, but he loved us anyway. And he chose to die in our place and to, to take the punishment that our sins deserve so that we might be free to know God. That's the thing you need to be thinking about if you're not sure what you make of the Christian faith. But if you do know that, if you believe that, it's a pretty good sign that you're living in fellowship with God, that you are the real deal. You should be very reassured this morning. Uh, it also means that we can be fearless before God. The second subpoint there, let me read from verse 17 this time. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is in the world, so are we. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So he's moving on to say, well, what does knowing God's love look like in your life? What fruit does it grow in you? And the answer is that the, the love of God is perfected in you or it, it completes its work. It reaches the goal, achieves its purpose. When that love has driven out any fear that you may have of standing before the throne of God on judgment day. There is a fear of God that is 100% appropriate for Christians to have. The Bible talks about it over 300 times. We're commanded to fear God because he is very big and very holy, and you don't want to mess with him. You can think of that sort of fear as an awe-filled and humble respect and obedient reverence to everything that God is and everything that he's done. That's very different, though, to the fear that these verses are talking about. This is the opposite of confidence before God. You can think of it as a, as a kind of cowering fear that might lie awake at night, worrying about how God's going to treat me when I stand before him at the end of my life. Is he going to welcome me with open arms? Or is he going to throw the book at me as though I'm one of his enemies? And John's saying that sort of fear doesn't belong in the heart of God's children. And in fact, the work of God's love in us is to cast out, to drive out that sort of cowering, insecure fear. It's not impossible for a Christian to wonder whether God really does love us. We sang wonderingly, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? It's not impossible to doubt the welcome that we'll receive from God on the last day. Shouldn't beat myself up if I wonder about it sometimes. But it is unnecessary. And in a sense, you could say it's a sign that God's love has more work to do in me. It's something I should pray about. Because perfect love casts out fear. And God wants us to know that we have eternal life, to be confident before him. I once asked a, a Muslim friend, if he was certain that when he died, he would go to be with God in paradise. And he very quickly said no, because for him expressing any kind of fear, any, any kind of confidence rather would be presumptuous. 
So he said he had hopes, but he didn't know. And I've met people in churches who feel the same. Uh, an elder in a really good church said to me, I wonder every day whether I'll actually be in heaven. And maybe that thought has, has plagued you a bit over the years. You may have even been taught in some circles that doubt is a sort of virtue, that the opposite of doubt is arrogance. But Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we would be forced to live in doubt. He loved you to the point of death so that you might have confidence on the day of judgment. When he said it is finished, he meant it. He didn't mean partially finished or nearly finished or finished if you live a good enough life from this moment on. He meant it is finished, the work of salvation done and dusted in its entirety for everyone who believes. It is a staggering thought. It is almost incredible that I, with all of my sin, all of my guilt before God, the millions of times in my life when I've said, thought, and done the wrong thing, failed to do the right thing, that still I don't need to fear meeting God at all. Because if we've trusted in Christ, we're not on probation with God. We've been adopted into his family. One commentator puts it like this. Does the Lord Jesus cringe in terror before the Father? Of course not. And humbly, but sincerely, we may share his boldness. That's the sort of fearless confidence that God wants us to enjoy. In life, in sickness, even as we face death, as we stand before him on the last day. Kind mark number one then this morning. One proof that we're in true fellowship with God. We know his love. That's the work that the Spirit does in us. Here's kind mark number two, that we love God and his family. We love God and his family. It's no surprise, is it, that when you, you come to know and believe the love that God has for you, when you come to know the God who is love, it makes you a more loving person. That the, the fruit of love is going to grow inside you. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And there are two things in particular here that we love, God himself and the main focus, his children, our family. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we keep, uh, sorry, the, when we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So it's like there are two sides of a coin. The, the proof that you love the God you can't see is that you love the Christians you can see. And the only way your love for God's family can be truly godly is if it flows out of your love for God and the desire to obey his commands. So let's think a bit then about our love for God's family. Um, I was chatting a while ago to 
a guy who'd started dating a girl. Uh, and when they were first getting to know each other, he didn't realize that she was very much a dog lady. She loved dogs, not just pedigree puppies, either every kind of mangy stray that she could get her hands on. She loved and wanted to adopt into her family. By temperament, he was a bit take it or leave it about dogs. He quickly realized that loving her was going to involve loving her dogs, even the, the smelly, disobedient ones who left a trail of mess behind them. Uh, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but not many of God's children are of the, the pedigree pup variety. Uh, one or two have been known to leave mess behind them. But look again at verse 1 of chapter 5, and you will see that every Christian has something in common. Whatever their background, whatever their race, education, gifting, whatever their social skills, whether we find them easy or not, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's not about our creation, it's about our salvation, that every Christian has been given a brand new start with God, new creations, born again by the Spirit, united to Jesus and given eternal life in him. And therefore, just like the natural overflow of my mate's love for his now wife was to love her mangy dog, so in a much more meaningful way, the natural overflow of our love for God is that we'll learn to love the other members of his family. Not thinking that we're taking pity on a mangy stray when we do that, but recognizing that we were spiritual strays until the love of God brought us home. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. If you glance down at verse 3 in our passage, I want to stress it. Some of us naturally, I think, bulk at the idea of letting people close enough for us to love them and to be loved by them. Um, some of us are very shy or introverted. Some have been hurt in the past, even by God's people. So there are lots of reasons why we might prefer to love God without loving his people or to talk about loving God's family in general without thinking about the need to love the specific members of his family that we see on a Sunday morning or whatever. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, specifically the commandment to love one another. And this is the bit to stress, his commandments are not burdensome. Uh, he's thinking about Jesus' famous words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the point is that we can trust that word. Never once in the Bible does Jesus give any of us a command that is bad for us. One writer put it this way, I love this. The commandments of Jesus are no more burdensome to us than wings are to a bird. And it's because it's what we're made for. Birds are made to fly. That's their natural habitat. That's when they're most themselves. It's when they're most free. And it's their wings that enable them to do that. As human beings, we're made to love God. We're made to love people, 
It's our natural habitat. And so when God tells us to do it, he's not restricting us. He's setting us free to be our true selves. So they are commandments. But it's in obedience to them that we enjoy rest for our souls. And there's another promise as well. Did you spot verse 4? Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. It's an unusual phrase, overcoming the world. I don't know what pops. I can't read that without thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio standing on the prow of the Titanic and proclaiming himself as the king of the, the world. I don't think that's what's uh, in view. But we, we saw in chapter two when John talks about the world, do you remember this bit? He's not talking about planet Earth, but about everything, the whole world in opposition to God, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions. And in chapter two, there was that command, don't love the world. Here, though, the encouragement, even though it's tough not loving the world, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And we talked about the battle that we all face every day, that it's not easy to love God instead of the world. And it is a battle you will know if you are trying to live it that is real and intense. Bible speaks of our enemy, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And you will know that there are times when we stumble and fall. But that is why we need this encouragement that everyone who has been born of God, every Christian, for us, the, the last line of our spiritual story has already been written. However strong in faith you feel or don't feel this morning, however secure you are in your faith, every Christian overcomes the world. Sin will never master us completely. The Apostle Paul, the God who has begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. There's nothing, neither life nor death, nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus himself. I give my sheep eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's not just talking about superstar Christians, whatever they are. He's talking about every Christian. So if you look onto the rest of verse four, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? that Jesus is the Son of God. So no superstars, no special qualities. It's just simple faith and belief in Jesus. You've got that. You overcome the world. You overcome the evil one. And no one can ever take that victory away from us. Well, let's loop back, loop back to where we started. Um, John's aim, I've said in all of this, is encouragement. Under the influence of these people who have left the church, doubts had started to creep in for John's readers. He's wanting to reassure them us. You are the real deal. Authentic. Because your faith is kite-marked. Because you know God's love in Christ. And in turn, you love God and other people. And friends, God wants us to enjoy that reassurance. That's why he included 1 John in the Bible, so that we would know that we have eternal life. So do we know the love of God in Christ? Not do we know everything that there is to know about it, because we never will. 
But do we confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of all who believe? Do we love his people? Not perfectly, we never will. But are God's people our people? Are we wanting to be identified with them, to stand with them, to learn to serve them? Then we can be confident, we can be assured that we are real deal, authentic believers and an authentic church. There is lots for us all to work on. Of course, we know that. And no one hears this and then thinks, oh, that's brilliant. I can now go back to loving the world. But God, the Spirit, has done his work in us. And we can know that we abide in God and he in us. And that we have nothing to fear on the last day because we've been born of God. And everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to praise you again for your unfathomable love for us. Vast beyond all measure, boundless and free. We praise you that though we don't deserve it, you've loved us in Christ and sent him to die for us. We pray that you might give us deeper and deeper confidence in that love so that we might be truly fearless before you in our walk with you. And especially as we think about the end of meeting you one day, give us real confidence. And we pray that your love might uh, do its work in us, not only of driving out fear, but making us loving people, that we might love you and that we might love others. We pray for a growing commitment to one another, therefore, in your church. And we pray that you would help us to work that through practically. Thank you for the promise of victory for those who believe in Jesus. We pray that rather than making us complacent in the fight against sin, that it would give us courage to keep fighting. Not that we might not love the world, but that we might love you and keep your commandments. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.